Hi, Dan. You all right? Hi, Mary. Yes, good, thanks. How are you doing? Looks like you made it back from your cycling adventures, okay? I did, yeah. We got back this morning. So I think I mentioned this actually a couple of episodes ago. We finally had a holiday, but we didn't make it out of the UK. Cycled from London to Brighton and then east around the Kent coast all the way to Whitstable and then didn't fancy the final cycle back into London. So we got on the train this morning. But yeah, carrying everything on our backs. So we've worked pretty hard this last week. And classic English weather. It was really sunny most of the days we cycled, nice and hot for all those hills. And then every day we stopped, it drizzled on the beach. So Lovely. <laughs> Did you contribute to the inflation statistics at all? We ate out purchasing? every meal. So we're supporting the economy and we're supporting inflation, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. So, Mary, we're on our 22nd episode of this podcast. Bit hard to believe, isn't it? And this is a wrap, I guess, for season one, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. Crazy to think from, I guess, February, was it, that we first recorded our first ever episode. And look where we are now. Yeah, that's right. I mean, obviously, everyone's sick of saying that this year is unprecedented and all the rest of it. And we certainly said that a few times. But yeah, it's certainly been a bit of a journey, hasn't it? We thought, I mean, given everyone's probably taking a bit of time off in August, what we thought is it would take just a few weeks off. Plan to be back in September. Who knows whether people will be commuting then again or not. It certainly seemed earlier on that that would be a good bet, but just don't know, do we? But we thought maybe take six weeks or something off and enjoy the rest of the summer. Yeah, absolutely. Give us a chance to prep for season two. Exactly. Before we do that, we wanted to have a quick little look back at some of the highlights of the first season, just to remind you of a few things that might be worth taking a look back to. And yeah, I mean, it almost seems strange now to say, doesn't it? But we recorded, what, the first three or four episodes back in the office, didn't we? And then most of it we've been doing like this remotely, which is pretty funny. Yeah, it's incredible how you kind of get quite used to it. So remotely, rather than sitting in a room and sort of prompting each other in person. But yeah, it seems to work okay. Hopefully the listeners agree. Yeah, and we kicked off rather auspiciously with an episode on forecasting, didn't we, in February 2020, which has to be sort of slightly hilarious in hindsight issue. I think we did actually manage to have a good discussion about forecasting and some of the pros and cons of it and then sort of how that actually works, didn't we? So, Absolutely, yeah. The hasty recording the morning of release <laughs> to just give a little update on what had happened since the recording, I suppose, kind of marked the way we were then going to have to record all our future episodes where actually it's been a weekly occurrence record on on a Monday, release on a Wednesday, because things move so quickly that we couldn't just pre-record a whole bunch. Yeah, well, that's right, isn't it? We started off with this idea of recording batches, sort of timeless sort of discussions that weren't necessarily that market sensitive, and then releasing them each week. But then you sort of realise, especially at a time like this, everything is basically a little bit market sensitive. As in, what I mean is anything, you can look back a few weeks later and it just looks different depending on what the markets have done. So you can't rely, we just found you couldn't rely on keeping a load of stuff by and then dripping it out gradually. You had to be recording each week, really. Otherwise, stuff sounds stale quite quickly, can't it? Yeah, that's right. But I think despite that, we've, well, I've certainly learned quite a few lessons from the various recordings. And I guess hopefully we can sum them up in this episode. But there's definitely been some consistent themes that have run through no matter what type of episode we've recorded, which is quite interesting in itself, I think. Yeah, exactly. So I suppose just 
going into that, looking back then at the episodes we have done, I mean, we were just chatting just now, weren't we? And we reckon there are basically five sort of categories of episodes that we've done, and most of them fall into one of these. So those five were asset classes, where we've discussed a specific asset class, macro sort of issues, where we were discussing bigger picture economic investing issues, episodes about fund managers and selecting managers, which has been a few, episodes that were book club episodes where we reviewed, discussed a book, and finally, episodes on behavioral psychology, on the psychology of investing. Yeah, yeah. And so I guess, did you have a favorite type of episode, Dan? I really enjoyed the book club episodes. I mean, I know that's <laughs> maybe an obvious one to say, but they were fun, weren't they? I mean, it was it was good to read the book and having in my mind that we were going to have that discussion about it. It really changes the way you read a book a little bit if you know you're going to be discussing it afterwards. I've never really been part of a book club or anything before, but kind of, yeah, it's kind of fun, actually, I noticed. I know what you mean. Yeah, it certainly changes the way you read books. I actually have been part of a book club with a group of friends from uni. But to be honest, it probably should be named Wine Club because we don't always talk about the book and the books are, tend to be not quite so heavy as the ones we read. But yeah, forcing myself to read books I wouldn't normally choose to read, but then actually finding that I enjoyed them was quite a nice surprise for me, to be honest. Although I have to admit, I did have to cram read one of them because I underestimated how long it might take me to read. So it's always the danger with a book club episode. But Yeah, exactly. So I suppose any listeners out there who haven't listened to those two books yet, which was, what was it, The Big Short and The Man Who Solved the Market, which is about Jim Simons. Anyone who fancies those for a bit of summer reading, I suppose you've always got the episodes to come back to later if you want to hear our little discussion of those. And we'd love to hear it if you enjoyed those episodes. Do reach out and let us know because it'd be quite fun to do a few more. I'm sure we can find plenty more books on that, can't we? Absolutely. My my challenge will be to find a book that you haven't yet read, though, Dan, because I think you seem to absorb books pretty quickly. So. Well, I read a lot of stuff. If only I could remember 10% of it is what I would say. <laughs> I mean, wouldn't that be great? But you can't have it both ways, can you? No, no. So on asset classes then, Mary, so what stuck out to you in terms of those asset class discussions we had? What were some of the takeaways that have sort of stuck there? That's a really good question. I think I'm probably jumping ahead slightly here, but I think a lot of the asset class discussions sort of come back to the fact that investing can be boiled down to a very simple equation in most cases. So when we talked about each of the different asset classes and we talked about supply and demand and we talked about what was driving those markets, actually you find that there are consistent sort of ways of making money. I suppose, so which asset classes we talk about? We had property and real assets investing. And that clearly at the moment was a, in the current environment, was a really interesting discussion. That was really interesting, wasn't it? Because we initially re-recorded that, I think, in February. We were going to release it in late March, and we had to completely scrap it and record it again because, obviously, things had changed so much. But, of course, it's easy to forget that was a very topical discussion even before the current sort of crisis kicked off in terms of the issues with retail in the UK and commercial property and that sort of stuff. Well, yeah, this is the thing, isn't it? It was really just accelerating something structural that was already happening. So, yeah, really quite an interesting discussion there. I don't know if you count emerging markets. Does that count in this? Yep, that definitely counts in the asset class one, yeah. So that, I mean, I'm really biased, but that's probably was my preferred or my favourite one to discuss. And again, I guess emerging markets is an interesting one because they actually for once weren't really hitting the headlines. They were the least volatile equity asset class this year, especially at the time of recording. And so it's interesting then to talk through the fact that you might have on the surface expected emerging markets to be most badly impacted by the volatility we've seen, but actually they were holding up pretty well. 
That's right. And there's been loads of dispersion within that as well, hasn't there? I mean, not to get into the details now, but pick the different countries within that and you could be anywhere from up, down, massively down, flat on the year. And I guess that's what it should be like, really. It should be like that. Whereas there's been a long period of time when that hasn't necessarily always been the case. Yeah. And I guess it just highlights that we call it emerging markets as if it's one thing and it's actually a whole load of different things. And obviously we discussed in the episode whether the term emerging markets is now a bit outdated, but I still think helpful to group in some way because I think it helps investors understand what sort of risks they're getting themselves into. What else did we discuss? Private credit. That was another asset class, wasn't it? Private credit was probably my favourite out of the asset class one, to be honest with you. I thought the discussion with Steve covered a lot of ground and it's just such a topical area. I was going through and picking out some headlines from The Economist for a blog I was doing. And it's a theme that just comes up again and again in The Economist and other areas, how investors are participating in these private credit markets over the last decade. So I think it was really interesting to get into that and have a good chat about it. And of course, it is so topical right now because a lot of these opportunistic managers now is when they want to be trying to pick up really good deals, back tricky turnarounds, buy debt in very distressed or companies that are in, in really difficult situations situations to try and take them through that and make a good return on it. So it's kind of as topical as ever, really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. One of my sort of two key takeaways, really, from that episode, and I know we have the discussion about the difference between a sort of white knight and a vulture fund. There could be a fine line, and it's important to stay the right side of, of that line. But also the sort of liquidity point, because, of course, if you invest in that sort of area, you are tying up your money, but you're doing that in order to give the manager so much more flexibility. They can really invest in, in lots of different opportunities for you. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I've reflected on that white knight versus vulture point quite a few times, and it it does matter to people. And I think rightly so. I mean, no one wants to feel like you're giving money to someone who's going to behave in kind of a, a sort of a vulture type way. But at the same time, tricky turnarounds are risky and need money to back them, which does deserve a return. So it's clearly one area where you do have to really understand what your managers are doing. Needless to say, it's a very active area, isn't it? So it's an area where hopefully manager research can really add some value. Yeah. Yeah. And that's interesting because I think that discussion really reminded me of our first ever episode with Matt Gibson. We were talking about markets and managers, I think, weren't we in that first episode? And he was talking about the idea of short selling and the position that people can take in the market and that sometimes you could end up, people view that as potentially being, being bad because you're sort of betting on someone to fail, but actually propping that company up when it shouldn't survive is also potentially bad for overall market dynamics. But clearly this sort of opportunistic way of investing is a way of saving some of those companies by injecting additional capital and restructuring. So, and you sort of need all of those different roles for markets to continue evolving and working as they should. Yeah, exactly. I mean, as I say, a lot of it's come into the headlines recently because a lot of casual dining chains on the high street that are in trouble at the moment are owned by these sort of private debt funds. And it's those debt for equity type deals that are coming to the fore right now. So it's kind of really increased in influence as well, that whole area. And I guess that asset class came up again in our chat with Hish about income, using that sort of asset as a way of getting income as an investor. We also talked about the decline of dividends and I guess the evolving needs of investors and where investors think they want income, do they definitely need actual income? And where they do need income, is it better to get it from credit markets rather than equity markets where the dividend is potentially under threat? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I've reflected on that a little bit bit since. And I think it's interesting, isn't it? I think there's a lot of reasons in the past why investors have liked equities that pay dividends or that grow their dividends. It's actually quite complicated to unpack all those reasons. Some of them, in some ways, it's just another fundamental indicator of the strength of a company, I suppose, isn't it? The fact it's paying dividends. 
whether or not you actually need them is sort of one thing, but also people who do actually need an income for whatever reason, whether they're drawing on that in retirement or whatever. So clearly it's increasingly, it's difficult to come up with portfolios of equities that are paying decent dividends and growing them. So I think putting credit on the table there as an investment is the right thing to do. Absolutely. I think the final thing that possibly the final thing Hish talked about actually was the fact that for individual investors, sometimes labelling of different funds can be unhelpful. And he was talking about it in the context of whether there's a good level of income from that fund, I think, or not. He struck on a point that I think really is one of my key things for the whole series, which is sort of about, I guess, jargon or labelling or using complex ways of describing things and the fact that that can be very, very unhelpful for investors. It does cut both ways, though, doesn't it? So I think you're alluding to with the point about emerging markets. I mean, jargon is one thing, but labels for stuff and buckets to put things in, it really does work in both ways because to an extent it's helpful because otherwise you're just faced with this huge sea of stuff that you can't make any sense of. So you sort of, yeah, it's natural to need some kind of taxonomy to approach the whole thing. Otherwise, it's just too overwhelming to even know where to start. But then I suppose you can easily get to a point where that starts driving behavior in sort of suboptimal ways or people get too focused on those particular definitions and ideas. So it's quite a tough one that maybe emerging markets is a really good example of that to say, well, is it still helpful or not to have emerging markets as a thing? What's the alternative? I suppose the alternative is investors decide which markets they want to invest in, whether they want to be Ecuador or Malaysia or Lebanon or Brazil or China. That's pretty overwhelming once you start looking at that whole list, try and slice that down. But equally, it seems quite naive to look at it all and say, oh, yeah, emerging markets, that's just a thing that we we allocate a certain amount to. And I think you're absolutely right. Labelling, you do need an element of labelling and an element of grouping is helpful. But it's understanding, I suppose, what's under the surface. So Hish mentioned it in the context of funds on a platform and whether they label themselves as giving you income or they don't. And the fact that you might then miss a whole bunch of potentially suitable funds because they're not in the right bucket for you. But really, it's then understanding as an institutional or an individual investor, what actually is under the surface of that label. And you only need to do that thinking once and then you kind of understand it. Yeah. I think the the biggest area we talked about was macro ideas. I reckon we had seven episodes that fell into that bucket. So we talked about forecasting in general. We talked about inflation. We talked about interest rates. We talked about responsible investing. We had an episode with Steve Webb where we talked about government in a crisis. And we had that episode I recorded with Alison Schrager on risk. So what stands out to you from all of that? What would you pick out as being good? So I really enjoyed the Alison episode, actually. So you recorded that interview with Alison and we then sort of discussed around some of the key issues. And there were just a few things that she said that really stood out to me. One of them was that she sort of highlighted that there is a difference between uncertainty and risk. So risk is something you can measure and uncertainty is something that you can't measure. And so actually, in particularly in the current environment, and you recorded that, I think it was early March, wasn't it? It was up at the PLSA and that was basically the last thing I went to before lockdown. I got back from that and very quickly we got into lockdown. I think it was like 12th of March or something. It was surprisingly late in hindsight. So I suppose it was particularly topical to be talking about risk in, in a period where we were all immediately going into lockdown and unsure what the future kind of was going to hold and unsure how long lockdown was going to last and, and all of that sort of stuff. So some of the things that she said about the focus on risk really stuck with me. So I think that was probably one of the earlier ones. That was probably my highlight. How about you? She has so many good things that I've thought about a lot from that. I mean, I love the analogy of jet skis and financial derivatives. The point there being that things that can both reduce your risk, the jet ski can save your life if you're drowning, but it can also multiply your risk by towing you into much bigger waves. 
which is exactly what derivatives do. It's a really nice little analogy that I've used that a few times, I think, since then. The other one that really resonated with me, she talked about three ways of managing risk, insurance and diversification, which are both kind of clear what they mean. And then the final one was sort of resilience. And that's really resonated because I think that's been really proven this year. And it's not something that necessarily fits into models that well. But I think what she meant by that was just having enough ability, which often means just cash sitting there to be able to not have to do anything for an extended period of time so that you're not forced into actions. And I think that's what we've seen with a lot of our clients this year was one of the early actions was just making sure they had enough cash in place to keep paying the commitments. So I think that idea of resiliency beyond simply what risk model tells you, I think is a really helpful thing to take away. Absolutely. I found it interesting. I think she said she wasn't a fan of using sort of stress testing and scenarios, partly because you're going to use a scenario that you might think is extreme and it's probably going to be based on some historic extreme period of time, like the tech bubble bursting or the 2008 uh, global financial crisis. But any new crisis is going to be the uncertainty that we talked about is going to manifest itself in a different way. And so actually you might stress test and think you're absolutely robust and then find that you're not. So that's, I guess, when your concept of resilience comes comes in. But I do think that stress testing can be quite helpful when comparing two different strategies, for example. And it's just, I guess, understanding that there are lots of different ways that you can quantify and measure risk. And actually probably looking at a number of different ways when you're making big decisions is the best way to make sure you're thinking through the various aspects of that decision and not getting focused on just one metric and one number. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it can make it, it can make it tangible, can't it? And it can be quite an intangible area quite often. Anything that can make it more tangible for people is to be welcomed in general. But yeah, just not getting too hung up on it, I think is important. Were there any other episodes in the macro section that stood out to you, Dan? I did really like the discussion with John Canfield about inflation, actually. And I learned a couple of things there. I thought his points around possible reasons why inflation could go very low or negative through the end of the summer was quite interesting. I hadn't thought about that before. But then equally, how it could then be potentially higher in the medium to long term. Some of those points I hadn't thought of, and I've thought about that quite a lot since then. Yeah. The thing that I'd not really thought through on on inflation was the fact that it's very hard to measure when no one's buying and selling anything. So Yeah, there is that as well. Yeah, exactly. Does the basket of goods really make sense when no one's buying or selling anything in that basket? So the point there was that things could just suddenly snap back to a new level once the prices start being observed again, because so much is sort of being just flatlined across at the moment or just imputed in, in sort of approximate ways. So I hadn't thought that at all, really. Yeah. The next general theme that we discussed is that we had some great conversations about fund managers. And I suppose we talked to three people whose job it is to select fund managers, which was Matt Gibson, was he from LCP, our head of manager selection. We talked to Ryan Hughes from AJ Bell, who's head of active managers there, and Chris Ralph from St. James's Place Wealth Management, their global wealth strategist. What did you make of those conversations? Anything that you'd pick out as a highlight there? So I think one thing that I guess was quite pleasing to hear from all three of the people we spoke to was the fact that during the period we've been through this year no managers sort of completely fell over so yes markets were very volatile but managers kind of operationally continued and everything worked as it should people migrated to moving from home and that all kind of worked as well so I guess that's the sort of comforting angle and then I guess the other my key takeaway really from all of the conversations I think Chris summed it up really well in our most recent episode sort of saying it never gets easy it might be simple but it never gets easy And so I guess that applies both to the managers doing the investment, but also the the job of selecting managers as well. Chris had a nice way of sort of describing it, that managers should have humility. That's something that he's looking for when interviewing managers, because they really should always be learning, actually, because markets are always changing and evolving and drivers are 
morphing over time. So actually, if you're not learning from any, any of that, then you're probably not going to be such a strong investor for a long time period. I completely agree. I mean, that it's never easy quote really stuck out to me as well. I thought it was quite memorable. I must admit there was a book, wasn't there, that I did look it up, the Simple But Not Easy book. I haven't actually bought that one yet, but I might get that and have a little read over the over the summer on that one. But yeah, a couple of other themes that stuck out to me from them was a lot of discussion over manager culture, which I thought was really interesting because that's something that I guess has really come of age, I suppose, in the last few years, I think, in terms of people really focusing more on it. I guess it's probably always been there as a thing, but it hasn't been sort of discussed as such in that way, which is kind of really interesting. And the other one just about process and forming a concrete idea in advance about how you expect a manager to do and measuring them relative to that versus everything else. We all know that the hardest thing in the world is to know when to actually fire a manager, especially if they're underperforming. No one likes firing a manager that's already lost money. That decision is just so many multiples times harder than appointing a new manager at the start. Everyone's friends and it's sort of, everything seems great, doesn't it? It's interesting, isn't it? Because you generally, if you're appointing a few different managers, particularly if within one asset class, you've appointed a few managers, you are probably doing that because you think they're going to do different things. But you can't then be really harsh on one manager that's not performing or not outperforming the market in an environment where they really just shouldn't outperform. And I think that's something that it's very easy to forget in the moment when you're sort of looking at the numbers and saying, why is this manager lagging? But actually, as you said, having a really clear idea of what you expect from the manager and, and what would lead you to sell or, or buy actually helps you to make the decision quickly at the time. Yeah. And that's a point, comes back to a point I think you've made a few times. It's almost like making these decisions in advance to the extent that you can is actually a really helpful tool that investors and asset owners can use. And in that example, it's saying, setting out the reasons that would lead you to sell a manager. But I think you've also talked about that in terms of reducing your equity allocation, changing your allocations. If you can make that decision in advance, uh, if you like, it makes it so much easier. Absolutely. Yeah. I think the catchy way of uh, that I always think of as describing it is almost doing a pre-mortem what could lead me to make a decision in a different direction well let's pre-make that decision and then it's easy to make at the time that's certainly something I've it's come up quite a few times during the course of this not least in the behavioral section which we'll come on to but it feels like it's come up in most of the episodes really yeah let's talk about the behavioral section now then because we had two great episodes didn't we just on general sort of psychology of investing generally with Nikki and then on groupthink with Zoe, really enjoyed both of those. What would you pick out there as being the sort of highlights? So I think not only in those two episodes, really, but in a lot of different episodes we talked about, there's the kind of human element of decision making and investing. So the market is a series of individuals making decisions, I think is how Nikki described it. And I think that's really important to remember when we're talking about anything to do with investing and market movements. There were various tips that we had from both Nikki and Zoe on tackling the dangers of behavioural biases and the dangers of groupthink. And a lot of them, I think, as we've just touched on, focus around having a plan, maybe doing a pre-mortem and being able to follow a policy in times of market volatility, because it's in times of market volatility that things like groupthink, certain behavioural biases, so loss aversion, for example, I think we talked a fair bit about, can either prevent people from making a decision at all, and you end up with the risk of inertia, and that is a very big risk, I think, at the moment, or can lead to overconfidence where a group is making decisions and they are very confident in the decision they're making. When you're doing that very quickly, there's less chance for the person that has an alternative view to be able to voice that opinion and, and discuss it openly. So they were my, I think, sort of key takeaways from those sections. 
I'd love to come back to the groupthink point some of the time again, just because I just think you see it every week, literally. I mean, you see examples of groupthink all the time internally at work with our clients, with colleagues, but also you know externally, especially at the moment with expert groups, government advisory groups, all those sort of things is just so endemic in everything and so hard to get away from, even if you do know some of the signs that it's sort of taking place. I think it is important work to try and make people more aware of it and try and have discussions around how it can be can be addressed or got around. I think it was, it was all really helpful things. Yeah, I quite liked there was, I think in when we were chatting to Zoe, we talked about the idea of scapegoating, which is one of the risks you get with groupthink if one person has an alternative view. But we also talked about one of the ways of sort of tackling that risk is to allocate someone to be the devil's advocate and they have to make the counter argument. And I really like that. I think it's a really good way of making a decision in a more robust way, even if you kind of all unanimously have the same opinion and go in the same direction. It's just forced you to think what the other side of the argument could be. I think one of her points, wasn't it, that quite often the devil's advocate gets scapegoated. Well, yeah, that's the thing. There's always a risk that that happens. But it gives someone a permission to have the other view, I think is the nice aspect to it. But yeah, absolutely. And I think you do also, you still have the danger that decide someone is the devil's advocate and they are, for example, a more junior person. And so they don't fight very hard with their alternative view because they feel that the more senior person in the bigger group will have the better view. The risk doesn't go away, but I thought it was quite a nice way of starting to tackle it, at least. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And one thing I suppose we didn't get onto there, but maybe it's for a future episode. I've always felt that there's a need to kind of, there are some big decisions where you do need to throw everything at it in terms of devil's advocates and really get people to test every angle. Whereas there are other decisions where this is not really necessary. And I often feel that those two get confused a little bit. You get people who are trying to do a devil's advocate on something that doesn't really need it. And then the big ones that do need it, just it's just too hard or something when people can't get into it. So the final category then, we've already talked about it a little bit, was the books. We did Big Short and The Man Who Sold the Market. That was sort of fun and interesting. And I guess it's going to be interesting to keep a lookout for future ones that we should possibly do, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I guess if the listeners have any recommendations on that, then absolutely send them our way. I guess we've also had a few books recommended by the various people we've invited on to the podcast. And I'll have to remind myself of the list. I actually haven't got around to reading any of them yet. So I've got a, a fun packed summer ahead of me, I guess. I think in terms of just my one kind of, if I was to say I had one takeaway from the book discussions, apart from enjoying reading the books, it's the fact that both of the characters, the main characters in the books, who obviously are real people, were sort of a bit of a, an outcast role within the investment community, within society almost. And they, they weren't afraid of having that different persona. And actually that led them to make some quite difficult investment decisions or notice trends in investment markets perhaps more easily than other investors did. Be an outcast. Be an outcast. Yeah, I was about to say, I don't really know what the what the lesson is for all of us, but don't be afraid to have a different perspective, I suppose. I was going to say, perhaps we should get on to summer reading recommendations. It feels that's about the right time. I mean, we've kept a, a pretty decent set of episode show notes. I think people can go onto the LCP website under viewpoints, the search for podcasts, and you can see there all the notes for each of the episodes. You'll have all the recommendations that the various people have made. But what is on your reading list then for the summer? So I've just recently started reading why I'm no longer talking to white people about race. So it's not specifically focused on investment, but I guess clearly a very important topic all the time, but brought to light, particularly recently with events in, in the US and then sort of global reaction to that. And it's really well written. It's not a comfortable read. It's an important read, I think, and it's very well written. So it's I'm getting through it at quite a pace. What's on your list, Dan? Now, I've been playing a little bit of poker recently, just something I can play online remotely with friends on a Friday night. We've had quite a good 
group going, which has been a lot of fun, actually, I would say. So I started reading a book called The Biggest Bluff, which is an author who decided to become a sort of professional poker player as a experiment. But it's more poker as a sort of example of decision making in life about the fact that you've got hidden information, you've got information that you know, you, there's some degree that to which you can gather information, but there's always a limit to how much information you can gather. And then you've got to take a decision and it might be right or wrong for the right or wrong reasons, if you know what I mean. So that's pretty promising, actually, at the start, I would say. I'm a little way into that. So I'm looking forward to finishing that. And then the other one, which is a bit harder going, I'm reading the John Bolton book. I think it's called In the Room When It Happened or something. It's about John Bolton was the national security advisor to Trump for a while. So it's another one of these kind of inside stories into the Trump sort of White House. And that's pretty good, I would say, as well. And then I guess the other one that's on my watch list, maybe it should be on my reading list as well, to be honest, but Moneyball. I've not seen Moneyball. I think one of our early recommendations, probably for a book rather than to watch the film, was that. So I thought I'd give that a watch over the summer too. That would be a really good one to do a book club on maybe next season or something, wouldn't it? That's a nice one. Yeah. Yeah. On my watch list, I think it was Ryan who recommended one of the Ben McIntyre spy books. Agent Zigzag was one he recommended. The one I have read that I couldn't remember at the time was called The Spy and the Traitor. That's really, really good by Ben McIntyre. So that sounds pretty promising. So I'm looking forward to getting into that as well. Any podcasts? Do you much podcast listening yourself? or? I don't do a lot of podcast listening, to be honest. There was one that Zoe recommended and I've forgotten the name of it. Hidden Brain. Hidden Brain. And I did listen to a couple of episodes, actually, and, and really enjoyed them. It's similar probably to a lot of people. I did that when we were still in the office and I ran home and listened to it while I ran home. And it was about the right length for my run. And then I stopped commuting because I was in lockdown. And so podcast listening hasn't picked up for me. But I'm certainly planning to get back to that one. I've always been a big podcast listener, really. And uh, to begin with, when we were first working from home, I was really struggling to find the time. I've since managed to sort of get it back into my schedule a bit, but probably not quite as much as I was before. But I'm still listening to the main ones I listen to. I mean, I've mentioned some of these before, but I'm a big fan of Animal Spirits, which is a podcast to people who work for an investment advisory firm in the US, talk about markets and stuff. That's really good. And Bloomberg have quite a good suite of podcasts. If anything, they got a bit too many. You can accuse them of maybe being proliferating the podcast a little bit, but the ones I like, the PL podcast is quite good for market stuff. Odd Lots is quite good for topical discussions. The Economist have some quite good ones as well. They do some good interviews and their science one is quite good. It's called Babbage. Um, but probably my biggest recommendation on the podcast front would be The Knowledge Project with Shane Parrish. I've been following that for a few years now. I know quite a few other people we've spoken to watch that one as well. So that tends to be quite good, although they're a long it tends to be quite long form, so like an hour plus. And for me, those are the toughest ones to find time to listen to them at the moment, whereas I would really enjoy those on my commute was occasionally a little bit on the long side back in the days when we were commuting. And so that was actually nice to have that, but a bit harder to listen to now. That's a good list of recommendations. We thought finally, maybe we might just finish off by asking each other some of the questions that we've always asked to each of our guests. So what do you think is the most underappreciated thing about investing? So I'm going to go with along the behavioural lines and say rebalancing. I think the power of just rebalancing to a strategy you've already agreed is a really, really good way of making quite clear decisions. Well, you've made the decision already, essentially. It's a really good way of keeping a clear head through times of market turmoil. That would be my, my thing. How about you, Dan? Uh, I've written down two and I'm struggling to choose between them. So, um... <laughs> we might let you have two. The first one 
it's on the similar lines, but I just think the impact and the influence of psychology generally. I think in this business, we spend a lot of time on the mathematics and the theory of investing and just nowhere near enough on what goes on inside your head when you actually have to do it. So things like regret, FOMO, loss aversion, those things are real. They're really real and they really, really matter. And we can get really hung up on risk-adjusted returns and sharp ratios and diversification and all that stuff. It all hangs on having the right psychology to make those decisions. I think that's often underappreciated. The other one then is just power of simplicity. I mean, it goes a bit hand in hand with that, I guess, but I do think we have a nasty habit in the industry of overcomplicating stuff, whether that's putting too much jargon around it, whether it's trying to get too clever about the strategies that we do. And the last decade has been one where simplicity has been rewarded, right? Simple strategies that have been easy to criticize have actually done very, very well. So Dan, having now recorded 22 podcast episodes, what would be your top podcasting tip? We've obviously been on a journey, haven't we, through this? And um, I feel I've learned a lot about it. It's been super fun to do. Two things stand out, I guess. I mean, one, the software you're using to record, obviously these days really matters. So we use Squadcast, which really, really good. The main one I would say is just to get some post-production done on it, get a little bit of editing done. We use a chap called Matthew Passy, who's in the US. Couldn't recommend him highly enough in terms of what he's able to do, how quickly he's able to turn things around. And it just sounds so much better once someone's cleaned things up, taken out the pauses, done a bit of work on it like that taking out the sound of the fan in the background. We've had a few funny times recording where we could hear lots of background noise and somehow Matthew managed just to get rid of all of it. So yeah, he's an absolute star, isn't he? All the outtakes and the fumbles and the mispronunciations and all that stuff, which we'll have to get a little um, outtakes reel together sometime. Yeah, that'll be maybe a treat for another time. (laughs) And that's a wrap. Thank you so much for all the listeners that have tuned in week on week we really hope you've enjoyed it if you want to listen to any of the episodes again you can find them on our website or your favorite podcast app please also feel free to leave us a review we really appreciate your feedback and with that i guess have a good summer and we'll speak in september bye then enjoy the summer investment uncut is brought to you by lcp's investment team we provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional that word. Sorry. So today on Investment Uncut, uh, we welcome special guest. Oh, I'm, uh, sorry, I messed up a little bit. Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, sorry, we cut sorry, through the noise. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.